Welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. Hello, friends and foes and ladies and gentlemen and boys and girls. And we are here today on The Ramble with a very, very, very cool individual. Chris is somebody, Chris Hardwick is somebody I know and have known for, oh, I want to say five years now. And man, I'm just, I'm so excited. He's an adventurer. He's a global traveler. He's a serial entrepreneur. He has run businesses that have reached the B's. That's the billions. And we're going to learn about how he's done that over his very, very wide ranging career. Today, he focuses on giving back. He focuses on passing on that, that wisdom. He'd never say wisdom, but I'm going to use the word wisdom. I can use the word wisdom when it relates to Chris, because he's helped me just find clarity and overcome obstacles. And this is what he does so, so well as a life coach and also as a business coach who really helps you find your courage in the toughest situations in business. So, Without further ado, Chris Hardwick, how do you do? <laughs> I'm doing absolutely fantastic, Joel, and I'm honored to be invited to be on your podcast. And I'm totally excited to see where it goes and where it uh, ends up. And also, uh, I want to just say congratulations on the birth of your third beautiful daughter. So I just think it's family is absolutely incredible. And you have totally nailed it there. <laughs> beautiful wife, three beautiful daughters. So just way to go. Thank you. Congratulations. Chris. We are, you know, not to date the podcast, but I think we're 11 days in as we are recording this. And uh, I have, I've slept well the last six, not the first five. <laughs> you have three, right, Chris? I have three boys. And I was going to say, you know, maybe when your girls are a little bit older, you can, uh, I'll get, I'll get them to hook up with my boys. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> my boys are all, my boys are all in their twenties now. Your boys are in their twenties. My kids are all uh, very young. I am, uh, I am at the. That's really bad. The, the <laughs> okay. You said this was uncensored, right? It's uncensored, and we are allowed. To, we, we uh, on the ramble are allowed to make mistakes with our words, and oh, you are not held. Uh, <laughs> you are not held to unrealistic standards that I don't think uh, any human being should be, but. I mean, it's, it's, it is interesting, you know, cause I, you have three boys, I have three girls and it's, you know, when you have that third, you're like, there's no freaking way this is going to be another girl. I'm sure you're like, this has to be a girl, not another boy. Right. But hey, we were going to try for a fourth. And my wife's like, oh. I don't know. The stats are not on our side. And I certainly don't want four boys. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. And that's, and that's uh, often the case where people go for that. Ah, we'll just try. And then it's <laughs> the same deal. Not that there's anything wrong with having, you know, four boys or four girls or whatever, but uh, I feel sorry for my wife, right? Uh, a husband and three boys. So she's 
basically yeah. married to four boys, right? That's right. not a lot of fun. <laughs> your your immaturity level has always maintained that of your children. Throughout the, uh... Actually, I would say that some of my children are more mature than me, certainly my <laughs> eldest. <laughs> they, they do tend to take on that role. My eldest daughter seems to be, dad, you shouldn't do that. It's like, ah, oh, she, she's right. You know, like and how old's your daughter? How old's your eldest now? She's 10. 10. Oh, yeah. It happens. But Chris, man, like, <laughs> well, it's been a while since we connected. And more importantly, been a while since we connected in person. But I have to, I'm going to interject, potentially just like miss the landing and getting us started this random point in, in your life. And then we'll kind of figure our way back into your journey because. I think this little anecdote sums you up <laughs> real well. And I want to make sure I get it right. So please correct me if I'm wrong. But, you know, you're like, you're the type of guy, like after I've had a couple of beers with you, I'm like, Chris, when's the movie coming out on your life? <laughs> like, like, that's how epic of a life you've lived. And so to, far. Right. And there, there's, there's sequels ready in your, yeah, yeah. in the wing for you. But I remember this story. I was bitching and complaining about something. What? I can't. I don't know. Maybe I had like a sore leg or a sore back. And you said, Joel, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I broke my neck and then traveled 27 hours to Sydney the next day on an airplane. And, and you just like suck it up. And I'm like, you know what? He's right. So story. Is that true? Did you break your neck? And then traveled to Sydney, or am I remembering this totally? No, no, you remembered it correctly. It wasn't 27 hours. It's only a 15 and a half hour flight to Sydney. So you got that bit wrong. But the rest of it, okay. it was a compression fracture uh, on my, I think it's uh, C6. I was uh, on a triple black diamond trail uh, with a bunch of so-called mates mm -hmm. uh, on my downhill bike on Cypress Mountain in North Vancouver. And, and as most people in the mountain biking community you know some of the most extreme downhill uh free riding mountain bike trails in the world are on the north shore mm -hmm. in vancouver and i was at the peak of my downhill racing career i was 50 years old <laughs> actually 51 years old yeah and uh i had just come off a year of being the provincial champion in my age group in uh bc uh, having won every single race I ever entered by a country mile, which was pretty funny. But I was only there because my eldest son was at racing at a World Cup level. And he, I was cruising around with him in BC every year as he was coming up through the ranks. And one day we were up at the Canadian Nationals in Panorama and he entered me into a race without even telling me. And I ended up on the podium in my very first mountain bike race. <laughs> and, and then he convinced me to come and do dry land training with him over the winter mm -hmm. uh, in North Vancouver with Jason Bond. Uh, and yeah, and then the next year I got his old bike. I bought his old bike from the year before and we just did the BC Cup together. And it was one of the funnest times of my life. And we were down in Washington state and all over BC. And I just, I was like, just went in every race. And I was not that far behind the uh, elite junior men. And I was only on average about 30 seconds off the pace of the professional guys that were racing uh, who were like in their twenties. And 
Yeah, so I had a fun year. Uh, great community in the mountain bike community, downhill mountain bike racing. And it was the following January, actually it was February, because we had just decided uh, I lost the vote to move to Australia. I wanted to stay here. My wife and kids all voted, except for my eldest son. He, he wanted to stay here as well. And we were heading to Australia uh, like the next day. And I was heading to Australia the next day. We'd sold our house and everything. And yeah, my mates are like, you got to come for one last ride on the shore before you take off to Australia. (laughs) The the famous last words. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was insane. And yeah, so we, we get up there about halfway up Cypress mountain. You got the switchbacks that go up. There's the lookout and then there's the next car park. And anyway, there's a whole series of trails that drop in there. And we were going to drop in on a trail called Sex Boy, which is a double black diamond trail, Mm -hmm. which I'd ridden before. And it's insane. Cliff drops, banks, gap jumps, you name it. Uh, And just as we're crossing the road and lifting our bikes over, one of the guys is like, no, 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 no. We got to do Sex Girl. Let's go down Sex Girl. That's a triple black diamond trail that I'd never ridden. Mm -hmm. And I just remember watching a video of Sam Hill, who's a famous downhill racer uh, and a, a particular line that he took off this cliff and launched some 20 feet or something 20 25 feet down onto this transition and I just remember that was going through my head because one of the things my son taught me to do was we would watch YouTube videos of uh, circuits that we were going to race Mm-hmm. I think that was part of his process of memorizing the track. Mm-hmm. Um, so when ahead we got of, there, yeah. yeah, ahead of getting there, kind of I don't, cheating, I don't know. But it's always a different track anyway, but just in terms of. I, so I had watched a video a few times of Sam Hill going down this, and I'm like, this is freaking insane. And we just dropped in, and I was at the back of a, tra- a train of like five of us, and it was right out of the gate. It was like straight down, great big boulders into bank corner, gap jump, another bank corner, drop off, a couple of step downs, and then there's like just a sender straight off this cliff. You couldn't <laughs> see the transition. You had no idea where you were going, and I just entered completely wrong line, wrong angle, and I went head first into a, like a four foot diameter Douglas fir. Oh and uh, I was still clipped in to my pedals, still holding the handlebars when I pile drive head first into this Douglas fir. And I was about 20 feet off the ground. Jeez. It's kind of one of those life flashing before your eyes kind of events of which I've had way too many in, in my life. And, um, yeah, I thought it was all over. I woke up. I have no idea how much time between the impact and when I woke up. And I was lying there on the ground at the base of this tree, kind of crumpled up, and I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't move any of my fingers or toes or twitch or anything. All I could hear was the peace and quiet of the forest. Because... Because the four guys were already ahead of you at the well, time. Well, it's it's you cannot walk up or down this trail. This is like riding down the side of a mountain, and we're in a train. 
and were just flying down the mountain, hitting jumps, going off, and they were just gone. And when I say friends, mates, that's why I kind of, you know, I'd, I'd ridden with them once or twice before. And they probably got down the mountain some distance and waited for a while and I didn't show up and then they probably just kept riding on. Uh, they weren't that close, right? They were just people I knew. And it was literally 30 minutes before I got feeling back in, in like one of my hands and then my toes. And then it took about an hour before I was able to actually stand up. And what I had done is I had got what's called a stinger, basically, is when you hit something so hard on your head that it shuts down your entire spinal cord uh, and it just shuts everything down. And, and also from the concussion of the hit. But thankfully, I was wearing a, a really expensive $650 Troy Lee carbon fiber helmet. I had a, you know, like a $500 Liat neck brace on um, and a spine protector and shoulder pads. I mean, I was pretty armored up. I looked like a gladiator in those days. Uh, and you had to for this sort of shit, right? Um, and I managed to hobble because I'd kind of lost a bit of the left side of my body and I hobbled and dragged my bike down until I got to some kind of trail and then out and I ended up hitchhiking uh, back down to the bottom of the mountain where my car was parked. And I went to Lionsgate Hospital and they did an x-ray and they're like, yeah, you my complete crack through my vertebrae, um, compression fracture basically. And uh, yeah. So I kind of got lucky. Uh, if I hadn't have been wearing all of that body armor and safety protection, mm -hmm. the risk was is that my head would have not stayed in alignment and that what the neck brace and the helmet does is it stops the head from any further movement than that. So it prevents you from severing your spinal cord. So if I hadn't had that body armor on, I'd be a I have no doubt I'd be a quadriplegic today because I would have just completely severed my spinal cord. But as it was, I, my neck only twisted so far before the, you know, the neck brace and the helmet did its job. And then, yeah, I jumped on a plane that I didn't tell my wife or kids about it. I popped a bunch of Advils, lots of Tylenol and hopped on a plane the next morning. There's a lot of shit my wife doesn't know about that oh, I do. God. Hey, but we've been married 13 to two and a half years. So I, well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. I, anyway, that's a long story. Sorry about that. No, no, no. It's an important story because it, it essentially frames a lot of what I think we may end up talking about today. And it drives home the uh, very important part of a uh, lesson of if you're going to do any risky sports, don't cheap out on gear. <laughs> you know, True that. True I, that. <laughs> I remember, uh, I remember asking my, my sister-in-law who's from Argentina and she's a rock climber and they, my brother who moved up here a couple of years ago and, and they haven't bought any gear yet. And I was like, well, I'll pick some up because I live just around the corner from, uh, <laughs> I'll go to Walmart and get you some right? climbing gear. <laughs> well, I asked if I could, I asked if they had any on Facebook marketplace and she's like, you don't buy used ropes on Facebook marketplace. And I'm like, 
Now that you say it that way, like that makes total you do sense. not buy any used climbing gear except maybe a pair of shoes and a chalk bag. That's the extent, right? Of it. The extent is your chalk bag, and even then, it reminds me of uh, the story of when, um, gosh, what's his name, uh, the guy who did Free Solo. Oh, you know, so Free Solo is climbing without a rope up like the world's craziest peaks, and he's he's going up. And the documentary is called Free Solo and won the best picture. And he's going up. Um, Alex, Alex Honnold. Alex Honnold, yeah. Honnold. Alex Honnold, yeah. And so Alex Honnold has admittedly no fear. Wherever, whatever it is in his mind that would trigger fear, that part of, of you know his biology doesn't work the same as the rest of us humans. Maybe, and maybe that's the case with you to an extent, Chris, but you know, to, to be willing to climb up a mountain without any ropes. And, and there's this story where he's going up. I don't know if it's that face or a different face. And he's forgotten his chalk bag and he's halfway up the mountain and he has to scurry along over to some other climbers he sees and asks them if he can borrow <laughs> completely cool as a cucumber, some of their chalk, right? You know, on the side of a mountain. Hey, you got a spare chalk bag. Uh, since I'm halfway up the side of El Capitan, you know, a couple right? of thousand feet off the ground, and I don't have my chalk bag. <laughs> it's and they're probably level. fully roped off with all of the protection and everything in. And, and he's <laughs> just doing it. And this, and I, and going back to saying like the framework of, of of what I want to talk a lot about today is risk, which is something that you consider a value. It's, it's one of your life values is, is yeah. risk-taking. Risk-taking, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many, you know, places where we go with this conversation of, you know, one, I'm glad you're okay. And I want to- well, It's the second time, so it's all good. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I complain when I got a stress fracture as a runner. You know, a little little tear in the uh, in the femur or a crack in the femur that you could you'd still do stuff on, and you're flying headfirst into trees, going down What's mountains. The saying? Uh, just a minor flesh wound. <laughs> <laughs> but the- oh, I'm sorry, that's I got to interject for a sec. That just yeah. reminds me of that Monty Python movie, The Search of the Holy Grail. The scene where the knight is getting his arm chopped off and then his legs chopped off, and he's like <laughs> chicken. Chicken, I can still bite you in the kneecaps, but you've got no arms. Oh, sorry, I, I blew it. He says, you've got no arms, you've got no legs. And he's like, yeah, but I can still bite you in the kneecaps. It's like never give up, right? Yeah. Just keep on going for it, but I cut you off. No, 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 it's it, never give up, man. It's uh, It reminds me of, uh, have you watched 14 Peaks on Netflix? Oh, yeah, just incredible movie. That You talk about that's just not human. I mean, that guy is a beast to be able to do that in a lifetime, let alone in six months. Oh, my goodness. That is, I mean, I've done a lot of trekking in Nepal uh, all over the world. And, I mean, the highest peak I did on the Annapurna circuit was about six and a half thousand meters. And this guy's like running to the top of these eight thousand, eight and a half thousand meter high peaks and I remember, I mean, I, I'm fortunately really good with altitude, but I remember just hardly being able to breathe. You know, you take a step and you breathe and you take another step and you breathe. That was like six and a half thousand meters. Mm-hmm. This guy's almost running at like eight and a half thousand meters. Mm-hmm. Incredible, incredible yeah. movie. I'm, I'm all about NIMS right now. And, uh, and just that self-belief, that 
positivity that, you know, when you said never give up, that was his whole mantra, right? You know, yeah. poss- project possible was what he called it. And, and you've spent a lot of time in the mountains and we're going to, we're going to get there because I want to know what the mountains have, have taught you. But before we do that, I want, I would love it if you could just frame a little bit of your, your professional history in business and, you know, cause you started out in Australia and I know that you've run some incredibly successful companies, very large, very, very, very large projects. So could you frame that a little bit for the audience as to what, what you've done in the professional world leading up to, you know, sure. where we are I, today? I don't know if I'd call it professional, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> if professional means getting paid, uh, then I guess it's professional, but that's probably the only <laughs> aspect that's professional. I'm an Aussie, you know, kind of growing up with a life of winging it, you know, being on the beach and surfing and dirt bikes and stuff like that. But uh, I grew up, you know, immigrant parents. My parents immigrated from England to Australia in 1950. Funny story. My dad from Yorkshire, my parents from Yorkshire. And if you know anything about Yorkshiremen, they got pretty short arms and deep pockets, and they've never got anything in their pockets anyway. But my dad used to jingle his change. And when we go, and I'm like, why do you do that? I used to make them think I've got lots of money. I'm like, it's change. <laughs> it's not lots of money. But anyway, he, I mean, they were always poor, right? They never had any money. And my, my, my dad was thinking about immigrating to Canada. And at the time, it was 20 pounds or 20 quid, as they called it then. And uh, so it was going to be like 40 quid for him and mum. And then he, he saw a poster somewhere about uh, Australia, 10 quid. And he's like, oh, that's like two for one. <laughs> <laughs> I can get myself and your mom or the person I'm about to marry to Australia for, for 20 quid. It was like, that was a bargain, right? The the, you know, <laughs> three, four times the distance for half the money. Like he just, there was, how could you possibly, and he was an entrepreneur. It's like, that's just a bargain, right? Like how are you not going to jump at that? He never told uh, my mom's parents that this was a one-way honeymoon. She oh. thought this was actually a honeymoon. He only had enough money to buy tickets in one direction. And when they loaded up their big suitcase with everything they owned, you know, that was pretty much everything they owned, but it was like a suitcase, a big chest, right? He's like, honey, anyway, honey, why are you but, packing all that stuff? <laughs> yeah, well, that was it. That was their life belongings anyway. And so, yeah, they never came back. But, I mean, so growing up, uh, you know, the the one of three boys. So I have three boys and I'm one of three boys. So that's, you know, repeated myself. Yeah. And uh, I was a middle boy. But the, I guess the reason why that's important for, for me is my dad, as an immigrant, was one of these people that instilled in me and my brothers at a very, very early age that they used to say, the world is your oyster. You can do anything, be anything. The only limitation is on what you can dream. And so he was a traveler. His stories have been in the World War II, in the Navy. Actually, I just, my wife and I just booked a flight to Malta. He was stationed in Malta for the tail end of the tail war, the World War II. He was on a minesweeper. Every day could have been his last day, right? Mm -hmm. And then he worked on the Cunard Line, which is the guys that owned the Titanic. And he spent five years going back and forth between Portsmouth and 
uh, Halifax, New York, Miami, down to Havana, and through the through the Caribbean and back. And he just did that trip back and forth. And the stories of him ended up in the brig and getting tattoos and ink and blood poisoning and just nights in Havana in the in the late forties. And just, I mean, I grew up just hearing all these stories from my dad of all these adventures. And my dad loved to read. And he had all of these books, and not only the Encyclopedia Britannicas and the life books and the National Geographics, which were all down low where, you know, my brothers and I could get at them, but he had this row of books that had like, you know, Huckleberry Finn, uh, the, the Contiki Tour, uh, the Call of the Wild. Uh, it had all of these, you know, Leon Uris, like all of the plight of the Jews in Europe, like James Michener, all of his books. Like it was all of these books that were all about world travel and adventure. And these were the sorts of books that when he was a kid growing up, all of the books that he had as a kid growing up were all about adventure all about the world and these crazy expeditions. And in those days, it would have been like Shackleton going down to the South Pole to beat the Norwegians and in all of the climbing Everest and Edmund Hillary, like all of that stuff happened in the 1800s and the early 1900s. And my dad had all those books as a kid. And when he got back from the war, my mum had thrown all of his stuff out because she didn't think he was ever going to come home. And I remember him being devastated by all of these childhood memories and books that he had. So when he got to Australia, he rebuilt the library with a lot of the books that he had and then others after that. So at the age of 14, you know, there was rubbish on TV. I mean, I've watched Skippy. I've watched The Beachcombers with Relic, which is crazy. I don't know. Yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, all of the fun, you know, happy days, all that sort of stuff, right? But books. So I grew up reading books mm-hmm. and the adventures I learned about. So that just I had to share that little piece of the story because how could I not become a world traveler and adventurer after being fed that? And, and really, the other thing that my dad taught me was about birthright. You know, white guy with an Aussie passport, you know, he just really hammered that into us about the fact that never take that for granted. That you is that you why know, we I see have, Aussies everywhere around the world? Basically, yeah. Yeah. That- um, yeah. And and most Aussies, you know, up until the last, so when I was growing up, your parents were either from England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Italy, or Greece. Yeah. Southern Southern Europe or the UK. That was pretty much where everybody was from. There was one kid in my high school from China. Mm-hmm. And he was like eighth generation and guess what his nickname was china <laughs> that's what we called him like and he died of leukemia at the age of 16 he was one of my best mates it was the first loss of you know a high school friend uh, which was devastating but that was the environment that i grew up in and so that also was another thing around just always driving always pushing always striving and always wanting to see more of the world and understand more of the world was very much around never take anything for granted. Always appreciate what you have. Never forget the fact that you have a birthright that so many other people in the world don't have based on where you were born, your country you were born in, and having white skin. 
And so that was another thing that he really hammered in to us growing up. And these were foundational pieces that really helped. So getting back to your answering your question, uh, I used to grow up, my dad would spend Saturdays working on the house and Sundays working on the cars. So at a very, very early age, for as early as I can remember, I would be helping my dad build stuff on the weekends. Mm -hmm. And and he used to get uh, like a, a ton of sand delivered and a bunch of bags of cement. In Australia, everything's built out of brick because of the white ants and the termites and there's no forest because the hardwood got chopped down, you know, 200 years before. So everything's built out of brick. And so he would always have sand and cement and bricks, always. And he was always building. And he had this love of Spain. And every year he would do a business trip back to England and he would always go for a week down to Spain and travel around Spain and see stuff. And so our little three-bedroom house in the suburbs turned into a five-bedroom hacienda that could have been transported from Valencia in Spain. That's what we, between my dad and I, that's what we turned our house into by working on it every Saturday. And I, I remember at the end of every day, he'd crack a beer and he'd sit down, we'd beside one another. And I just always remember we'd clean all the tools and everything, clean everything up. We'd sit there and we'd look at what we'd built. And we built an archway that day, or we built another wall, or we were building something around the pool. And so I grew up building stuff on Saturdays. And then on Sundays, after I went to church with my mom in the mornings, I'd be working on the cars with my dad. And we would spend Sundays, we'd pull cars apart, rip gearboxes out, change clutches, you know, take the heads off, polish the ports, put new exhaust systems on, rip all the anti-pollution gear off in the later years, put it all back on, but none of it worked just in case they popped the hood. Mm -hmm. You know, like Sundays we're working on cars and we always finish the day with washing and polishing and vacuuming every single car in the driveway. And I always remember sitting there on the front lawn, having a beer with my dad or having a sip, you know, and pretty much the car looked the same as it did in the morning. On Saturday afternoons, I built something. And I just remember that there was so much satisfaction with building stuff. And I made a decision at a very, very early age, I was going to get into construction. And when I was playing in the sand, and I'd always get in trouble because I would have like paddle pop sticks, which are like an ice cream in Australia with a wooden stick. Mm -hmm. And I'd build bridges and tunnels and highways and rocks and sticks and stones. I'd have it in the sand. And when my dad would be laying bricks, I was like the brickies laborer. He'd be like, what's this bloody rock doing in here? Or what's this bloody stick doing in here? Right? Because I would sometimes leave my stuff in the sand yeah. and I'd get in trouble for leaving stuff in the sand piles. Right. Anyway. I knew I was going to be a builder and I got the opportunity to get, I was uh, all set to, to go into uh, civil engineering. That was my goal. And then I, I got this idea of going into the air force. I don't know, this before Top Gun, right? Yeah. And uh, I think it actually has something to do with Star Wars because I remember seeing Star Wars when I was a teenager and that had a real impact on me. And the whole concept of flying around in a spaceship, I thought, well, the next best thing to that is to get into the, into the Air Force. So I made a decision around about 14 that I was going to get into the Air Force. 
But to get into the Air Force, you had to be in the top 99 percentile across everything, right? Well, there was no way that was going to happen because I spent more time standing outside the classroom in trouble (laughs) and more time wagging school to go surfing. And there was 75 girls in my grade 11 and grade 12 and only 25 boys. So there was a lot of... That's there was of. a lot of things to do that <laughs> had nothing to do with schoolwork. Needless to say, I, I didn't get anywhere near getting into the Air Force. Even though I passed the psych exam and the physical and all the other stuff, I just didn't get the marks that I needed in high school. So that was out. And then I thought, well, I'd get into the Royal Engineers, but the Royal Engineers, there was no guarantee I might end up in the infantry. So Army was out. So back to construction, go to university, become a civil engineer. And that summer, I got a job as a surveyor, a land surveyor. And uh, I ended up getting promoted really quickly. I won't go into the reasons for that. And so here I was at the age of 20, fully qualified surveyor, doing survey for these major projects on the eastern coast of Australia around Sydney, and pretty quickly got up into site management and running projects in my early 20s. Um, and just like right through, never got to university. Did a, did a surveying diploma, did a management diploma, and always realized that I was not an engineer. Mm-hmm. I was not a left brain guy sitting in the back room crunching numbers. I was always out there, you know, managing and leading groups of people, even at a very early age. And so you took was... some of these businesses, like, you know, from, from what I recall, you know, your businesses have generated something in excess of $250 million in projects over $2 billion. You know, so where in terms of the time frame from being, you know, early 20s to all of a sudden, you know, I think your first company was like $15 million in, in revenue. Like where, where did this sort of inflection point happen where all of a sudden you're, you're jumping into these huge projects? And, and Yeah. So at the age of 22, I was basically running these projects as a site manager here. They're called superintendents. Mm-hmm. And these projects ranged from 20 to $200 million projects, mm-hmm. tunneling projects, high rises, uh, wastewater treatment plants, major bridges, underground tunnels, under the harbor tunnels, like I was probably, because I had a specific niche at getting projects out of the ground, doing the ugly, nasty shit that nobody else wanted to do. Every time a new project started, I got sent off to get the new project out of the ground, do the survey, get the project out of the ground, do the hard part that nobody else wanted to do, and then go on to the next project. And I was 22, and I'd already started my first business at that time. My dad had retired from his engineering business and he was working as my assistant. And I'd never forget, we were, it was a Sunday afternoon. I had to get this job done for my, so this is funny. I'm working for this company, the fifth largest contractor in Australia. I was able to, with their permission, borrow all the survey equipment. And in the evenings and on the weekend, on the weekends, I would do all the surveying for our subcontractors and get paid to do them. <laughs> Cash in hand with the company equipment, right? Yeah. With my boss's permission. He was a pretty cool guy. And one day, my dad and I were having lunch when we weren't working on the car that day. I had to get this job done. We're sitting out in the middle of Botany Bay, which is where Captain Cook landed in Sydney, right where the ships come and go and the planes come and go. 
And I'm looking at ships and my dad had incredible eyesight. He'd always be guessing, you know, the name and the like the Panama or whatever country it was from. And then planes would be landing and taking off. Oh, that's a Pan Am. Where's that one going, Dad? Oh, that's going to LA. Oh, that's a BOAC, you know, before British Airways. Oh, that's going to London. I said, who's on the planes? Oh, business people. Like when I go traveling back to Europe to see, you know, do business and to see friends and family. And I'm like, how do you get on a plane? Well, you've been on planes before because I'd done trips to England when I was a kid with my dad on business. He says, you buy a ticket. You buy a ticket? Like that's all there is to it. You buy a ticket and you get on a plane. He's like, yeah. The next day I went into Sydney Flight Centre and I bought a ticket. (laughs) (laughs) A one-way ticket to London. And I left at the end of that week. And I was 22 years old, and that began, that was the beginning of my global odyssey. Ah, so before, before. Before, before. So I spent the next seven years traveling around the world Uh and went to 65 countries in seven years. And uh, it was. That's a a lot of countries. Speaking to a guy who's been to quite a few, that's way more in a way shorter period of time, like. I mean, were you just hoofing it? Were you, were you, were you on planes? How were you going around? How were you paying uh, for it? I I paid with the all with my own money. My mm-hmm. friends thought I was rich. My parents were giving me all the money and everything. But I was in construction. I was already you know pretty high up. I was making really good money, and I was a good saver, uh, mm-hmm. except for the fact my brother and I were racing rally cars at the time, mm-hmm. and I put fifty percent of my money into our car racing venture. Because uh, I was like ranked top ten in New mm. South Wales at the time, rallying was huge in Australia. So mm-hmm. I raced motocross before. That was how I broke my back and a bunch of other stuff. But anyway, it was um, it was really it was just I actually had no agenda. Mm. I had absolutely no agenda. I arrived in London, and uh, my brother had been over there. He was over there at the time on the tail end of his like you know, trip around Europe, like all Aussies kind of have to do. Aussies and mm-hmm. Kiwis, they they go to Europe, right? But that's where everyone yeah, beer. goes. Now they go to Whistler. But, you yeah, know, right. Then they go to Europe, <laughs> right? <laughs> Ski town in British Columbia for those that yeah. don't know. But back in the day, it was St. Anton's in Austria. That's where everyone went. And we were headed to St. Anton's. So my brother and I were going to do a, a season over there. And we never made it that far, but I won't go into that. We ended up in doing three seasons in Chamonix in France. Mm. So skiing became a big part of my life. I never saw snow until I was 18. And that just, I, I got, I fell in love with the mountains and the snow and just the, 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 the world was so vertical in Europe compared to Australia where it's very flat and round, you know, it's just, everything is so vertical and the trees are so tall as opposed to stumpy, scraggly things, right? I just fell in love with the sort of European verticality of everything. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, but my trips were never really planned. I was just on a one-way ticket. I had a British passport and a, an Australian passport. And I, I, you know, my brother had done the Eurail thing and bus Kentucky tour thing. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm getting a car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So he he gave me his uh, Volkswagen Combi. Uh, I drove that around for six months, but it only had a top speed of 90 with a tailwind 
downhill on the <laughs> downhill with autobahns. <laughs> and I got like Porsches and Lambos and, and, you know, BMWs and Mercedes passing me doing 260 and I'm doing 90. I'm like, <laughs> this has got to change back to England, sold the, sold the camper van and bought a 528i BMW. And I was 22 years old and I'm driving around in this fully loaded olive green 1979 528i. Like, man, I, I bought a fedora. I had a leather jacket. You know, I was something long red hair, believe it or not. <laughs> I, was, I was pretty cool. Did you and ever then, think you were coming back or did you just think? I this didn't is even life. think about I'm- that. I never thought about that. I just, I had you know, I'd saved up 10 grand for this trip and I was going to make it last as long as I could. And then I got this idea of filling the car with girls to pay for the petrol or the gas. And so that worked out for a while uh, until there was, well, we only had two two-man tents. So things got a bit complicated. But anyway, yeah, I just went where the wind blew me. I met people and I ended up working my way down through the French, Italian, Riviera, across Greece, down in Athens. And I left my car in Athens. And these six Aussie nurses and I went island hopping around the Greek islands. Yeah. <laughs> and I ended up in, oh, and I met this guy who was trying to pick up one of my girlfriends at the time. And him and I became best mates. And we ended up in Israel. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we joined the Israeli army because that was a great way to pick up Israeli girls. And we traveled down into Africa and into Amman. And then, yeah, we got sick of that part of the world. And I left him down there. He got hooked up with some uh, Israeli girl and, that he'd met in the army. And then uh, I ended up back in Athens, grabbed my car, and then decided to head up through Yugoslavia and Italy, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, East Germany, Eastern Bloc in those days, 1984. And it was crazy. And I had some insane experiences, which you'll have to read about in the book sometime. (laughs) And uh, I met these six Aussie nurses back in Scotland three months later with a buddy, and we youth hosteled it through Scotland. And that was the end of my first 12-month trip. And on that trip, I think I went to about 32 countries or something. And then the following, I went back home. I ran out of money. Uh, I was going to import the car back to Australia, but it was going to cost too much money and I had none left. Uh, So I sold the car, paid off some money I'd borrowed from friends and family and stuff uh, and had just enough left to buy a one-way ticket back to Australia. Got back, got my old job back, worked for three months and then took off and did it again. The fever gets you with with, with travel. Yeah, back to Europe, traveled around Europe again, hitchhiked down to... Turkey and and traveled, you know, and then got ran out of money again, got back to Australia, got my old job back, got a few more projects out of the ground. And then I got a postcard one day from my buddy who I travel with in the Middle East, Kirk. And the postcard, I received it on a Thursday night when I got home. It was postmarked on the Monday from San Diego, where he lived, Mm -hmm. uh, Santa Barbara, sorry. And it said, China's open. See you, see you in Hong Kong next week. That was it. Postcard, Kirk, with his little smiley face. It's like something out of a movie. That's what yeah, I said. I, it's like <laughs> your whole life. Friday, I went in, and I'm I'm just giving you the abridged version. But Friday, I went into my boss. I said, I know I've only been back two and a half months, but China just opened. 
Like it's been pretty much closed to tourists. You know, business people have been able to get in for the last 10 years, but no tourists have been allowed in. He's like, you know, when I was your age, I was still living in a hippie commune, stoned most of the time in New Zealand, and you've already got diplomas behind you. you got like six years, seven years of experience. He says, just go for it. And if I'm still around when you get back, I'll try and make sure your job's available. And I took I said, look, it's just for two and a half weeks. He's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. We'll see you in two and a half months. I had three and a half thousand dollars saved up. I got back 14 months later. Oh my gosh. Was that the trip that you ended up practicing Buddhism in a monastery? That was a trip where I had a Brazilian girlfriend for a while who was a Buddhist and I ended up trying to learn the path to Nirvana when I was in Bunkan Monastery in northeastern Thailand. Did you? Uh, no, <laughs> but I became very good at pretending. Right. To like, do the hum. Like many of us today. <laughs> meditating, collecting the arms around. The problem was I was a novice monk in a white robe while everyone else had the saffron robes on. Mm-hmm. And at like five o'clock, we get woken up in the morning do prayers for an hour, climb down this freaking ladder, rickety ladder to get off the monastery, which was like a mini airs rock plonked in the middle of the jungle that had like these catwalks and meditating platforms on it. Walk down a local village about five kilometers away, walk down the main street with your wooden bowl. And basically the villagers put food in your bowl, mm-hmm. sticky rice, maybe a carrot or two, whatever. Right? Yeah, just, I've seen that when I was in Asia. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But I wasn't so I was the at, one with the bowl like you were. I was, you know, maybe I would put the bag of chips in or something. Well, I was at the back of the line, but last person in the line, my girlfriend was in front of me. And by the time, and you weren't allowed to look in the bowl, you just had to say thank you, whatever. And then we'd climb back up to the monastery, you know, hike five kilometers back, climb back up, sit there and chant for another hour. It'd be like nine o'clock. Mm-hmm. And then you can eat. Mm-hmm. And I'd open the bowl and there'd be a couple of little morsels of sticky rice sitting in the bottom. It's like, how the heck am I going to survive on this? <laughs> so after about three days, I figured out that all the monks went to bed at about seven o'clock at night. And I was a free climber. Uh, you talked about climbing without ropes. And I figured out a way of being able to down climb out of the monastery uh, and sneak down to the village. And I'd, I pretty quickly made some friends. There was a a couple who had snuck across the border from Cambodia into Thailand years before, and they had kind of a makeshift restaurant. So I was down there every single night drinking singer beer and pounding (laughs) back the best pad thai I've ever had in my life. And then I would sneak back into the, you know, struggle to climb back up into the monastery at like, (laughs) you know, 2 a.m. in the morning. And, uh, and then the next morning, the monks would be coming around, like, wait, trying to wake me up. And I'd be like, ah, piss off. You know, <laughs> oh, wait, terrible, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but so anyway, I, there was, there was this, there was this massive boulder, right? Like a, in the middle of the jungle. And at the very end of this massive, like airs rock was a, was this sliver of rock that had like tilted away. And there was an old hut on it. And the remnants of some kind of bridge that had collapsed many years before. So I rebuilt a suspension bridge across. It was pretty rickety mm-hmm. to get over there. And I got a bunch of fonds and palms and stuff. And I rebuilt the shed. And that became Chris's little 
shack, love shack, <laughs> whatever. Meditation shack, right? Right, right. And yeah, because my girlfriend wasn't putting out anymore. Now she was back in Buddhist land. And of course, the no, none of the monks were game enough to cross the bridge. So they'd be standing there throwing rocks and trying to wake me up. <laughs> This doesn't even seem real. It's so it's surreal. <laughs> and then, then during the day, I would just go free climbing on my own and climb all the, the cliffs that were around this particular area. And after about three weeks, obviously, they kicked me out. It sounds like you sort of deserved it, Chris. But like... <laughs> I was trying hard to find the path to Nirvana. There's no you try point. sitting there on a little square looking out at the jungle and the incredible mm. rock formations and all you're doing is breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. And the whole time I'm thinking, I want to go climb something or yeah. meet some people or go back to, you know, Pat Pong in Bangkok. Crazy. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's I, you're even the fact that you made it to a monastery for three weeks is, is very different than my my Thailand and many of my friends Thailand experiences, which never left the south. Well, I guess you go to Chiang Mai and everyone goes to Chiang Mai and it's a great place. But let's let's fast forward a little bit. I, 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 wanna, I never got to I wanna, the business pace. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's all good. I, I want to <laughs> know, though, before we go back to that, you know, what's your What's your takeaway? What did you, you know, seven years truly vagabonding it? You know, most people get a gap year, they get a summer, they get, they take a break between college and there's a very, there's an end date. Whereas you did it a bit differently. And I'd love to know, you know, what you, what you learned from that. And if you would advise people to do the same today in today's world, the way you did it. Well, absolutely, yes. And, and a lot of people would ask me, um, you know, why I was traveling. Why did I have this drive to travel and explore and see the world? And I came up with an answer that um, I, I, I understand it today, but at the time, I don't think I really understood my answer. But my answer was to answer unasked questions. And I was really building a storage, like a loading up my hard drive with memories and experiences that my belief was that those experiences and those people that I met and those relationships that I developed, even though they didn't have these things, <laughs> there was no Facebook, there was no internet, there was no social media, there was no way of keeping in touch with people other than snail mail. You know, the thing for me was I was just building up this this bank of memories. And you're right about like making a movie someday. If I could just like play the movie that's in my head, uh, that'd be a lot of fun because I'd be able to get all of these stories out and, and get them into a movie because there's many more. Um, but it was really, I think, just, yeah, I was, I was getting a store of memories and experiences. And even today, I meet people from different parts of the world. I know what accent they are. I, I can pick up where they're from. I like guessing what region or city they're from in the country that they're from. And they're like, well, you're not going to know of this little place. It's like, da, 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 da. I'm like, oh, that's just, uh, that's just near Sarajevo, right? And they're like, yeah. Well, how do you know that? I was in Sarajevo during the Winter Olympics and I actually had lunch in your town. And they're like, I've never met anybody. And so it was, it's a great icebreaker when you've been to a country where somebody's from 
and we live in a very, you know, global community and it'll be more and more going forward. So that was just awesome. Um, in terms of encouraging other people to do it though. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've just like I had the boss who kind of created it for me when I was an employer and I had lots of people working for me, I was always encouraging my apprentices and my young people to take time off and go traveling, go see the world, which was something that my dad encouraged my brothers and I to do. Mm -hmm. And I encouraged my three boys have all been traveling and they're all off traveling again this year mm -hmm. uh, to various places around the world. One of the best forms of education you can ever get. I absolutely agree. Uh, I mean, you know that we we took our young girls just when it was just the two of them to Lebanon and Argentina and all over the world and, and made a film about it. And, and I think that there's an intangible side of travel that it's not, it's not just an education of, I understand these different cultures or, or, or how they see the world differently from I see the world, but there's this feeling component where you just feel the humanity of the world. And I'm a huge proponent of it as well, but I'm curious as you took that home with you, you know, from that seven years of adventure. And, and as you mentioned, you know, it's about these memories that you have, where do you, as a coach, put on your coaching hat for a second, where do you value or put value of experiences in terms of deciding whether or not I'm going to focus all my time and attention on making money. I'm going to focus all my time and attention on growing my professional career versus trying to have meaningful, memorable experiences that may in some sense derail some of that progress, you know, early on, obviously, you know, long run it all, it all maybe sh shakes out into your life. But, you know, do you have, do you have that? Because I remember when I was growing up, I mean, I was taught, yeah, you travel, but you know, get it out of your system. Don't, <laughs> don't make it, don't make it your life choice. You know, that was a long way of sort of asking a simple question, but I am, I am curious, you know, how do you, you, you know, you, you tell someone to, to value the present moment of life and the present experience and opportunities like your China trip versus taking the more logical, practical, maybe that's a better word, choice to, no, you should have just stayed working with your boss for <laughs> not, gone, not gone to China when it opened, you know? Well, the funny thing is when I got back from that 14 month trip to Asia and I walked into that side office, my boss had been fired. <laughs> <laughs> And I walked into the new, too many employees disappear. <laughs> I walked into the project. This project was still going. It was the head office for the Australian Commonwealth Bank. It was like this underground bunker that everything was off-grid compatible so they could flip the computer systems over in a split second without the computers knowing. It had like, anyway, I walk into this guy's office. I'm like, oh, where's Gary? He's like, Gary? Gary? I'm like, yeah. The project manager, he says, I'm the project manager. Uh, that must have been the guy that was here before me. Who the hell are you? I'm like, I'm Chris Hardwick. I'm the surveyor. And the funny thing was, I turned to the side and there's my helmet covered in dust sitting on my old desk. It hasn't been touched for 14 months. I just can't believe it. I'm like, here, I grab my helmet, blow the dust off. I go, that's me. See, helmet fits. 
do you need a surveyor? He's like, you must have horseshoes up your ass or something because my, <laughs> my surveyor just quit yesterday and we need a surveyor. Oh you can finish gosh. the bloody job you started 14 months ago. This was like a two-year project, right? But in answer to your question, I think that it's, it's really uh, difficult in North America especially because there's very much this, you know, mantra around go to school, get a good education, go to university, get a degree, get a good job, get married, buy a house, have kids, and live happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Well, it's total effing bullshit because none of that assures you happiness. None of that. I say uh, do what you like doing and figure out a way to make a living at it. And screw all of that. And if you look at entrepreneurs, <laughs> how many entrepreneurs do you know that have a university degree or an education? The world was built by entrepreneurs. Now, there's a lot of really smart people out there, you know, that invented a lot of stuff too. And how many of them had a university degree? It's a scam, guys. It's the universities that are trying to convince everybody. You know, I just watched a Netflix documentary like about people paying this guy to get their kids into the Ivy League universities. Like it's just a freaking business. Universities is a business. And it's they're trying to brainwash us into thinking that in order to get ahead in life, you've got to follow this like five-step plan get a good education, get a degree, get a good job, get married, buy a house, have kids, live happily ever after. It's bullshit. And I it's got into the... <laughs> Sorry? How would then, what would you say is the plan for... And not not the plan as in, you know, I, I, I again, I'm, I'm sort of asking in a terrible way. I'm coming back to this where you say, you're, this new boss says you have horseshoes in, you know, up your ass. <laughs> but the mentality of trusting that the dots are going to connect for you in your life. If you go out and you live your life and you're unafraid to go back to your old job site and pretend like your job is still there, just, you know, trusting like it's happening. Like how much of that do you cultivate? Do you learn how to, to bring that faith into your life that it's all going to you know come together? I think- there's uh, uh, something I spend a lot of time with with my clients is around the power of visualization, mm-hmm. the ability to visualize a life that you want to live. So as I shared the story about how when I was young, I had this idea of me being a builder, like building things, right? So I, I at a very early age, I knew I was going to get into construction. I didn't know what. I just knew I was going to build stuff but I was always building tunnels and bridges. I wasn't building houses. Yeah. I ended up getting into civil infrastructure, building bridges and tunnels and power stations and all that sort of stuff. Never built a house, right? So the power of visualization. In terms of people and where they want to go in their lives and what they want to end up doing, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. Think about the things that you love doing. And the things you like doing, that's a real key. What are your natural gifts? What are your natural talents? Like how many people do you know go to university to become an accountant because their dad was an accountant or their granddad was an accountant? Yet they're an extroverted person with a high EQ. 
what the heck are they doing going to become an accountant, right? They're going to hate it for the rest of their lives. Figure out what your natural gifts are, what your natural talents are, the things you like doing, and then figure out how you can, you know, make a buck doing it. Yeah. Uh, I think the visualization piece is really important as well. I'm sure it's hard when you're, you know, there's so much pressure on teenagers to see you these days to figure out what you're going to be when you grow up mm-hmm. and how many dreams go to the grave because they're being forced into a particular program of education is one thing, right? Or making a decision before they have any idea what they want to do in their life about what career path they got to go down, what subjects, what electives they have to take in school so they can get into this university when they have absolutely no idea what they want to do. How many people out there are in roles and jobs and careers that they hate because they, A, never had any idea what they actually wanted to do, were never told to follow their dreams or what they visualize for their own future, Mm -hmm. but were kind of, you know, pushed along by their parents Mm-hmm. And by the school and the counselors and everything else to, to go go in a particular path. I just say, make up your own mind. Don't live somebody else's dream. How many dads out there who were miserable hockey players are trying to get their kids to be the future future Wayne Gretzky? Mm-hmm. They're trying to live through their kids. They were no bloody good at it. Maybe if I pump all this money into my kid and I get him off doing hitting camp when he's 12 and in peewee and into this and that and everything else, there's so much pressure on kids That's, today. Oh, totally. It's I mean, unbelievable. I, I battle it every day to not put that pressure. And I think it's a really interesting segue or good segue back into risk-taking. We'll get to your business. But the... The philosophy, because if somebody's going to go against the grain of their parents' wishes, of their society's wishes, where quite literally the society or the parents say, if you don't do this, you run the risk of, you name it, you're not going to have a savings account. You're not going to have a, you're not going to be able to get into the housing market. It's going to be too late. All these things that are not going to happen if you don't do, you know, what their best intentions tell you to do. So how does somebody, how, well, one, how do you conceptualize risk-taking in a way that somebody can say, oh, I could do that? You know, I can, saying it like that, it doesn't sound so risky. It just sounds like following my <laughs> dreams. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, how, and like, is there a process that you have for yourself or for your clients where you help them take healthy risks in life? Absolutely. Yeah, I think- a big part of it starts with the visualization piece in terms of what they see for their future lives, what their end game is, where they want to go, what makes them happy, their family, the relationships, everything else, right? I think that the process is very much around overcoming fear and people forget how to take risks. You've got to look at our life When your daughters were learning how to walk, did they fall? (laughs) Yeah. Of course they did. My middle son still got scars on his chin from smoking the coffee table when he was trying to get up and walk to chase his brother across the room. It's like, how would we ever learn to ride a bike? Mm -hmm. 
if we didn't fall? Like the problem is that these basic things like learning how to walk and riding a bike, that are so crucial life experiences. As parents, we all of a sudden want to make everything safe and yeah. perfect. And we don't want you to get hurt. We don't want little, little Johnny to get hurt. <sighs> he might get hurt, right? But that's the only way he's going to learn is by getting hurt. And business is success and failure, right? Sure, we hear about all the successful people in the world. And we hear about, you know, what they've done here and what they've done there and everything else. Nobody ever talks about the 24-7, the seven-day weeks, all the things they had to do, all the business failures, all the stuff that went wrong, all the amount of businesses and money they lost. Nobody ever talks about any of the real stuff. Mm -hmm. They put them up on a pedestal and talk about how amazing they are. And so part of the problem is we have created a society where everything's supposed to be a series of easy steps and you won't get hurt along the way. But that's not reality. We learn through making mistakes. Now, you can go and get an education that's going to prepare you in advance for that particular career. But I look at the schools again, and they don't teach you how to pay your bloody TELUS bill. They don't teach you how to get, you know, the get a credit get a credit facility or get a credit card or do your taxes or any of this life skills that you're actually going to need. They teach you about shit that you're never going to need in the rest of your life. So, but getting back to your, how do you learn process? And in terms of how do you take those risks? I think it's really, you understand where you want to go. You understand the vision. You dream big, fucking big, big, hairy, audacious goals. You, you dream Think back to when you were 10 years old. What did you want to be when you grow up? Mm -hmm. And most people, you know, they want to be a fireman or they wanted to go to be an astronaut or whatever, be a pilot, whatever it was. They have these big lofty dreams and visions for what they want to do. They want to be in a rock band or whatever it is. And then society spends all its time trying to convince us that that's not possible. So we're constantly having our dreams crushed, all right? So getting to how do we get there, we, we go back to when we were preteens mm -hmm. and we think about what made us, what, what we enjoyed doing, what we got excited about, what we were passionate about. Mm -hmm. And we figure out a way to get back to that, mm -hmm. where we have natural gifts and natural talents. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it's not, you know, we might have this crazy, hairy, audacious goal about something we want to achieve in our life. Don't get overwhelmed by the, sorry, not goal. We have this hairy, audacious, like dream for our life. Don't get overwhelmed by how you're going to get there. Work backwards and figure out what's the very first step that I need to take mm -hmm. to begin my journey to get there. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to know what the second step is, the hundredth step, the 500th step, whatever it's. You don't well, need that's to know an illusion that. too, right, Chris? Like there, the illusion is that that those answers actually exist. They don't. You don't know what they are. Maybe nobody even knows what they are because yeah. maybe that thing or that dream or that vision you have is something that doesn't even exist. You don't have to have all the answers. The mm -hmm. problem is we're so used to having all the answers. Dr. Google, what's the answer to this? Mm -hmm. 
Oh, for me, when I was growing up, Encyclopedia Britannica. What's the answer to this, right? Like, <laughs> OG, you know, the OG. pages, right? <laughs> but the thing is, we're so used to being told and we're so this ease of getting answers to information. Let's not even go into the authenticity or accuracy of those answers. Mm. We just got an answer. Great. I'm good to go, right? Yeah. And all I'm suggesting is, is that have a bit of faith in yourself to stumble and fall and pick yourself back up. Mm. Have a bit of faith in yourself to learn how to ride that bike because you know what? Your buddy's riding the bike and he's the same age as you. If he figured it out, I can figure it out. Yeah. Like have faith in yourself to be able to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and keep on going. Mm-hmm. And, and it's important to look at past failures and experiences in your life as a way of projecting that ahead to the next thing. Because everybody's made mistakes. And what happens when you have a mistake? Yeah, yeah. You learn from it. I know. You and I want to wanna interject right there, at, right at that moment and say, you know, what about that mistake that seems fatal? What about the you crashing into a tree, racing down a cliff, uh, you know, on a bike? Or, you know, I've had businesses go bankrupt or near bankruptcy. You know, they might and have I've lost businesses bankrupt. as well. I get right? that. And so this is, you, these yeah. are these moments, Chris, where I see so often the entrepreneurs, the artist entrepreneurs who, you know, they want to be in TV or film, the authors who want to write books. There's this moment, almost like an inflection point where they say, and it, and it often follows a bad one, like, a, you know, uh, I'm done. I'm going back to safe. Yep. How do you pick, how do you pick yourself up and dust off? when it's really big and it's, you know, I, I have my thoughts on that, but I want to know your thoughts on that. How do you, how do you get up? Maybe you could share a story about how, how you've gotten up in the, in the past, but how you'd coach somebody to get back up from a real bad one where they're like, I'm done. I'm going back to, I'm going to be that, you know, whatever the safe job is for them. I think it's really important to do a postmortem assessment evaluation of what just happened. And it could be any anything, whether it's crashing into that tree, losing a business, you know, losing a really good employee, whatever it might be, right? Losing a bunch of money on the stock market. I think it's important to pause mm-hmm. and reflect mm-hmm. and reevaluate your decisions and understand how you got to that point. What was the series of decisions and events that I made to get to that point? And really, you talked about the inflection point. I think it's there's somewhere along that journey, something happened, either it was a decision you made or didn't make, or it was some other external environmental force, competitor, whatever it might be, that if you can identify what that is and then ask yourself, okay, if I was to do that again tomorrow, what would I do differently? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, that experience is worthless if you don't learn from the experience. Mm-hmm. So like you... I have had business success and business failure, and I lost a business that cost me many, many millions of dollars. And it's important not to dwell on things too. Like, it's tough. It's difficult. You get kicked in the nuts. You're down. Like, it hurts. But it's not going to dwell in on the negative and wallowing in self-pity. <laughs> It's not going to do anybody any good, right? It's easy to do, though. It doesn't do you any good, but bloody hell is it easy. So think about 
go back through the steps, figure out what went wrong, where it went wrong, learn from that experience and make a mental note not to repeat that again in the future. Now, the more experiences you have, the more failures, this is an interesting thing, you know, though you've heard the whole fail fast, fail cheap, fail often, Mm -hmm. the more mistakes you make, the more failures you make, the faster you grow. Mm-hmm. And the faster you learn and the keys you learn from those mistakes, because you analyze those mistakes, you get better, you get stronger, you get smarter, you become more wise. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you're not going to screw up again, but it means that you are growing. So how do I coach my clients? It's very much around growth. Keep moving forward. Keep taking another step. Keep taking another risk. You know, assess the risk, just like when I was mountain bike riding, I had the appropriate protective clothing on because I had seen other people get really badly injured. So I took precautions. Maybe in business, you have a plan B. You put some money away as a nest egg. I lost everything. I only, you know, back in 2012, when we made the decision in early 2013 to move to Australia, I lost everything except for my principal residence. And that was part of the deal that I negotiated as a transfer of my equity and shares in the company. But, but, you know, one day I was worth $25 million and the next day I was worth one. But, you know, moping <laughs> over the $24 million isn't going to do you anything. And the reality is I'm way happier today without that $24 million because money doesn't buy happiness. And there was a point in time at the peak of my corporate success where we had four houses and a garage full of German cars, the ones with circles on them, (laughs) and a big F-350 super crew cab and a 32-foot travel trailer and four dirt bikes and 15 bikes I owned. My family had 25 between a family of five of us. Like, it was insane. Seven-bedroom, four-bathroom house. Like, going down to Vegas and trips and traveling around the world and all this sort of stuff because my lust for travel has continued and does continue. Mm -hmm. But none of that made me happy. It was nice. It was comfortable, but it didn't make me happy. And, you know, now working with other business owners and entrepreneurs allows me to touch many more lives than it ever would Mm -hmm. with me just running my own business. Now I have the ability to impact thousands of lives, whereas before I could only impact a few hundred. Mm-hmm. I again, thank you for for sharing for sharing that story, and and I'm curious: is in that journey as you're growing this very very successful company and you have all these things, was there inflection points as it's scaling where you didn't check in? with yourself and say, one, I'm not happy or two, man, I'm fucking redlining it. And I got to be careful, not necessarily financially, but with work overload or just the business is growing at a potentially unscalable pace. And you didn't take that pause to, to reassess the risks holistically in your life uh, as it was happening. So that's part one. And part two when you say pause, do you mean like 
journaling? Do you mean go away for three days and just really get quiet and think about it? How do you suggest they take a, a good hard look? Yeah. So uh, you had two questions there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm going to answer the, the last question, right? We'll go back to the first one. Never been a big journaler, mm-hmm. uh, although I wish I was. But anyway, it's all just up in the head. <laughs> what I remember that is. Uh, I think that, um, yeah. So how do you remember? How do you, sorry, I'm, 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 I'm just going, when you talk about taking this pause to assess the mistakes, does it, is it like, you know, after dinner or are you, are you suggesting to your clients that they really oh, okay. take a pause? Like really, sorry, really the pause, pause, the pause, I call them mountaintop experiences. Mm-hmm. It's you've got to get away from technology. You've got to get away from the house. You've got to get in, in the outdoors. You've got to get, get into nature, you know, whether it's a run, a hike, whatever. I call them mountaintop experiences because, first of all, you're going to sweat like a pig to get to the top of the mountain, even if it's doing the grouse grind or whatever it is, right? Something that forces you to be thinking about nothing else than your own lack of physical <laughs> health and wellness. You're pushing it. You're struggling. It's hard work. You're working up a sweat. It's tough. It's difficult. That's why I use the mountaintop type experience, right? It's because when you get to the top, whatever your mountain is that you choose to climb, you are exhausted. You are spent. And it's in those times, in my experience, where people have things like epiphanies. Mm-hmm. And people have no other thought going through their mind, social media, business, relationships, fight with their spouse, whatever it is. They are a sponge. They're a blank sheet of paper. And what will often happen is that's when you have these wonderful epiphanies and you have these ideas and these thoughts start to flow and things pop into your head. Your conscious is on overdrive. Your subconscious is on overdrive and stuff just starts coming out. It's like you've sort of created this mental space for yourself to actually have some non-agenda, non-controlled, free-flowing thoughts. That's been my experience. And that's what I encourage um, people to do is to create those alone times after some form of physical exercise. And if you're in nature and you're sitting on top of a mountain and you're looking at the awe and the beauty of the world around you, it's amazing how you get those thoughts and ideas and create things you've never thought of before. Just come into the, come into the, 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 the conscious mind from the subconscious mind, because I believe you're, we're suppressing the subconscious all the time. And so when we create an environment to allow those subconscious thoughts to rise to the surface, that is a way of us creating those moments to really reflect and to think about it. Of course, if you can take three months off, ski your ass off like I did in 2017, <laughs> or you know, go to, go to a monastery in Thailand, you know, those sorts of things are really helpful as well. I, you know, what's so funny about that is I, well, maybe it's not funny at all, but for, I would say for a decade and a, and change, I never did that. Just outright stopped. 
and really pushed myself into a bad spot. And then when I started doing it, the problem that I faced, I found myself in was that I was fucking terrified of the epiphanies I was having. And I was like, oh, shit. I don't know if I can actually do the thing that I'm being called to do or like, you know what I mean? And so. Well, that's self-doubt is, is yeah. an automatic human response, right? Right. It's, it's, it's the freaking left brain telling the right brain what it can't do. Or and the it prefrontal brings, cortex telling yeah. the primal brain what it can't do, right? Like that's a human condition that as homo sapiens, we've got to live with, right? We've got to understand how to actually yeah. manage that and understand what's going on in our own bodies and mm-hmm. learn how to biohack our own body. And I, don't, I say body because it's not just our brain, right? It's, it's our mm-hmm. body and understanding how, how it works. You're bang on. I mean, for me, yeah. it was... I. It was self-doubt. It was knowing that the decision was going to unravel certain things. It was going to change the course of the steady ground. You know, you take a risk, you end up on steady ground, and then you you realize that steady ground is not where you want to be. So you have to un- unearth that and change is scary. And I found that, you know, coaches like yourself, I, I have had them to help me when I wasn't able to listen to that voice very well myself. A coach was without question, invaluable in helping just, well, bringing it right back to what you said. Well, what's the big picture? Well, what do you want? It's that really simple question. What do you want that we never give a freaking straight answer to in our life? Well, you know, I want this, but you well, know, are we saying what we want or what we've been told by social media, yeah. friends and family and everything, all of the peers around us and everything else of what we're supposed to want. Yeah. I mean, I shared a little bit about my business journey. I mean, I had multiple businesses that I bought and sold and everything else. And after a few years, uh, my wife pointed out that I was actually turning into something she didn't like. Yeah, This person that was driven by money, like mm-hmm. one of my early partners. And that wasn't who I was. It wasn't how I was wired. And so when we got back from Australia in two, at the end of 2016 and I took three months off after running that multi-billion dollar project down in Australia that, that turned me gray, bald, blind, and almost <laughs> deaf uh, in four years. I took three months off and went and skied my ass off and we, and, and did a bunch of mountain bike riding in the snow up in Squamish and recharged my batteries. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that process, um, when Melissa and I were sitting around talking about now what? <laughs> yeah. And we didn't really have any money because I didn't make enough in Australia. That whole move cost, you know, millions in terms of lost. We were out of the real estate market here. So that was a huge, it went up like 50% while we were away. Uh, I mean, financially, it was a complete disaster. For the kids, it was fantastic. They got to experience my life growing up in Sydney going to school, surfing before and after school and all all that sort of stuff. So for the kids, it was a fantastic experience. And I got to spend time with my family. But anyway, here I am, three months into 2017. What the heck are we going to do now? Mm -hmm. And my DNA position was, well, go buy a company. Well, I didn't have any money. Hmm. Got to try and do an earning, find some guy who wants to retire and try and do an earning into the business and get equity in the company and take it and run with it. And, and, and Melissa challenged me. 
she's like, can you have a break from being an entrepreneur? It's really stressful being married to an entrepreneur, especially mm -hmm. one who's all in, which goes to the question we haven't answered yet. We'll come back to that mm -hmm. is, you know, I was always one of those people who was just all in. And so the conversation went something like this. Well, if I can't be an entrepreneur or we're going to decide together that I'm going to take a break from being an entrepreneur, we talked about getting a job. Well, I have one of those in Australia, not doing that again. Uh, how about becoming a consultant? Yeah, I hire consultants to tell me what to do. I don't want to be one of them. Um, the only real opportunity left was to run peer groups and become a business coach. That way I could work with entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And I had been involved uh, with Tech Canada's peer group program for seven years when I was a business owner, and which is a segue into your other question around uh, being able to understand what was coming down and what the future looked like and taking risks and what have you. And I was the, I was the source of entertainment in my peer group because, you know, every couple of months I was buying another company. Every month I was buying, you know, half a million dollars worth of equipment. Uh, we were just growing in leaps and bounds. And everybody knew I, I didn't have any, I had my single family residence and a couple of other properties. And I was just leveraging like 10 times over. I, I couldn't believe how the banks just kept throwing money at me. Mm -hmm. Mind you, this was in 2010 up to 2012, 2008 to 2012. I mean, who the heck decides to start a new business in 2008 in the middle of the economic recession? Well, I do because I'm a contrarian. So when everybody else is going this direction, I'm always going the opposite direction. I look at what everyone else is doing and I'm like, well, companies are crashing and, you know, one minute they're getting six, seven times multiples. The next minute they're shutting down and companies are, and, and I had just intentionally sold my previous business because I wanted to grow through acquisitions. And over the course of the next two years, I did five acquisitions, but I was getting companies for like asset value, mm -hmm. 10 cents on the dollar compared to what they'd been getting a few years before. So that was part of my strategy was to grow quickly through acquisitions with the specific goal of get to hundred million in five years and sell the business for hundred million. Cause the business I was in was you could sell for revenue. And when I got to hundred million, I got into a, uh, a group or a swim lane of acquirers so I researched who my acquirers were. I knew who was going to buy me before I built the company. Mm -hmm. I knew who I wanted to work with before I built the company. I knew how much money I need to launch the company. And I spent three years planning the launch of this company, but I was waiting for the next economic crash because that was the only way that I'd be able to afford to purchase these companies mm -hmm. to realize my five-year dream of getting to $100 million and selling the company for $100 million. Mm -hmm. And I had a hiccup at year four. So during that period, I'm going to my meetings and my colleagues and my peers are like, Chris, this is crazy. Like you need to slow down the growth rate. Like you're going to explode. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Maybe, you know, she'll be right. Yeah. <laughs> Classic Aussie saying, right? Like you just, you've got all your eggs in one basket. I said, yeah, but that's my basket. 
that's the basket I'm working on all in. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, in retrospect, uh, you know, there's definitely some takeaways and lessons I learned and that's the sort of stuff I coach my clients on now is, is my personal lessons. But the thing was I was growing at 10 times my sustainable growth rate, mm -hmm. not like 1.2 <laughs> or 1.5, but 10 times my sustainable growth rate. I laugh about it because I was laughing about it at the time when my peers were telling me and I'm like, yeah, well, my goal was to get the 100 million in five years. I'm not changing my goal. That's my BHAG. That's what I'm gunning for. And yeah, I know everyone's telling me it's impossible and it can't be done, but you know, I'm always up for a good challenge. No different to the types of projects that I used to do. I always set challenges for myself that are unrealistic, a stretch, and they force me to lean in and figure out how the heck I'm going to achieve that. So when I decided I was going to get to 100 million in five years and sell the company for 100 million, I had absolutely no idea when I made that decision how I was going to do that. But I spent three years planning. But what I didn't anticipate was the fact that it would be so hard to get access to money and equity and capital. And I didn't predict what was going to happen with, you know, there was a few unfortunate events that I won't go into around what the ultimate demise was that forced me out of the business. But that company did sell for 100 million. Now, it took them an extra two or three years to do it, which it wouldn't have taken if, if I'd have diluted my equity and brought some more funding into the company because we had everything in place to do it. And so I know looking back that that was a totally achievable plan. Mm -hmm. It was very aggressive, but it was totally achievable. Mm -hmm. And I have a whole bunch of lessons learned and, and can coach a lot of my clients on my lessons learned and things that they can do differently. Mm -hmm. Things like having a plan B, things like don't put all your eggs in one basket, things like, you know, diversify your portfolio, mm -hmm. uh, other potential business interests, real estate, stock markets, a crazy place these days, gold, whatever it is. So yeah. I'm able to provide very different advice today to my future self than I was prepared to listen to. And so part of that comes back to my comment around how do we learn? We make mistakes. The fastest education you're ever going to get is by making a decision, screwing up and learning from it. Chris, thank you again for sharing that. And uh, I mean, it, we're all the beneficiaries because I've been to your tech groups and I've been, I've watched you work and I've watched you not only share that advice, but just really mirror people in a way that they need to be mirrored to, to get past themselves, get past their own blocks. And it, it's, a, it's a segue into what will be my second to last question, because we've been going a long time and I'll have to have you back because I, I have a whole bunch more questions that I've missed, but, but I've just so enjoyed listening to your stories that I, I didn't, oh man, it makes me want to get on a plane again. But uh, you know, going back to this, to these, these tech meetings. Sorry, Joel. Yeah. Sorry, mate. Like, why can't you? Me? Yeah. Oh, I, I haven't traveled in, in a long time because know, we've Why been, can't you? Why can't I travel any yeah. right now? Because I'm not vaccinated. Oh, so okay. that's why I can't travel right now. But I, I assume that that will uh, all come to a head soon. And I, and I wanted, I mean, that's pretty much on point of my next question, which was, in line with a 
com- the last conversation we had where you were having a laugh about how in these meetings and in various settings, you would always ask people their stance on COVID, vaccinated, unvaccinated. I don't, you weren't looking for somebody to single somebody out. What I found so fascinating about it was nothing to do with COVID. It was the importance of tough and open conversations that you were seeking. And so I wanted to, as I said on my second to last question, I wanted to get a sense of why you do push that boundary with people. I mean, you're the guy to do it because you create such a a safe environment, but in these times, you know, where does that come from where you, where you encourage people to have the tough conversations, whether it was about COVID or anything doesn't matter, right? That was just the mechanism at the time that you were, you know, the, the button you were pushing, you know, how does that, how does that play into how you coach and, and how you see the world today? And, and I don't know if I framed that question very well, but. um, Well, I, I just, it's, I guess I go back to my upbringing a little bit uh, and the whole, you know, there's too much sugarcoating goes on. There's too much dancing around the real issue. Yeah. Uh, there's too much bullshit around political correctness, mm-hmm. just not calling a spade a spade, not, you know, the friggin' elephant is in the room. It's sitting right there. Let's yeah. talk about the elephant, right? Yeah. To me, it's a bit like mistakes. We learn when we push the envelope mm-hmm. and we learn when we have confrontation. Uh, we expose ourselves to other people's ideas and other people's opinions mm-hmm. when we take the time to learn what they are and when we create an opportunity for them to talk. Mm-hmm. The second last member to join my CEO group is from Chilliwack owns a business that's probably highly inappropriate and is most of his company is unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. Might as well be from Texas, right? Well, that's kind of Texas, similar. Texas or Florida. Gun trucks, gun racks, <laughs> pickup trucks, all that sort of stuff, yeah. right? Anyway, the point is I, as soon as I found out he was unvaccinated, I had to get this guy into my group mm-hmm. because now we could have a real conversation. Mm-hmm. with somebody who was a firm believer as an anti-vaxxer with a lot of the other people around the table. And this is not about my opinion or what I believe or is right or wrong. This is about getting the conversation going mm-hmm. so we can get into the real issues and have real conversations mm-hmm. about shit that is, we should, is, is important to talk about and understand. And along the way, hey, we might just actually understand that perspective and learn something. Yeah. And, and it moves our needle in terms of our understanding. And my responsibility I see is, and my challenge is separating the person from the issue, mm-hmm. and separating the, uh, the person from the opinion. Yeah. And my wife taught me that at a very early age. When, sorry, not early age, very early in our relationship, when she was at the dinner table with my family in Australia, first time she met them. And it ended up like it always did with my dad and my eldest brother having a big argument. And before we even realized it, 
this is when Melissa and I had only been dating like a few weeks. We heard the front door slam. We hadn't even noticed her get up from the table, walk out downstairs and out the front door and down the street. <laughs> so we heard the front door slam. I went looking for her. She was gone. And it was later. We were having a conversation about it. And she's like, I don't get it. Why are you guys arguing? Well, because, you know, I was taught you got to win the argument. She's like, no, you don't have to win the argument. There's nothing wrong with you having an opinion and your dad having an opinion and you're you're all entitled to have your own opinion. Yeah. Why don't you actually try and understand more about their opinion and why they believe what they believe? And you might actually learn something along the way. Mm -hmm. So for me, it kind of ties into let's have the difficult conversation. Let's talk about what's really going on. And let's see what we can do to learn more about one another and move the needle just a little bit more. I, I mean, that opens up a Pandora's box of other questions. I, I'm curious if you think that as a, as a country and as a, as a world, we, we did have the conversation or not as it relates to COVID and, and going back to this idea of risk and learning to take risks you know, where do you think the last two years puts everybody, not any one particular generation in how they're going to approach the next decade based on, you know, where we have been, which, you know, maybe, you know, could be defined as the period of time where do not take risk, you know, the markets, inflation, volatility, COVID, you know, all, all of these different things. We're not in, you know, we're not in school. We're not going to events. Do you think that there's a, a halo or of, of, of that that's going to carry forward that we have to be really diligent with ourselves to, again, assess risks and continue to be open to whatever life throws at us versus saying, shit, shit, life's pretty, pretty brutal. Look at the last two years. I, I really need to retrench into my safety. Um, and I don't mean the safety of your health. I mean, the safety of life in general, like I, you know, safe job because God knows when the next pandemic is going to happen, that type of thing. You know, how do you, how do you think, how would you coach somebody or how do you think that the next call it five years is going to look or for people taking risks? <laughs> I think, uh, I don't think it's going to be any different, really. I don't think so. I mean, I think that uh, this is just another pandemic. We're going to see many more. And we're going to see more and more pandemics in the future. This is a part of being human on this earth. As we continue to overpopulate the country and we continue to have bats and pigs living in the same space, people and animals basically converging on one another. As we see global warming and we have atmospheric rivers, record high temperatures, droughts. Australia burnt up in 2019. Mm-hmm. 63 million acres burnt to a crisp. Like the world is changing around us. And it's not like we didn't know this was coming. <laughs> We're just doing nothing about it, right? So it's arriving on our doorstep here and now. That's the world that we are going to be, that's the world we're in. And that's the world that we're going to be living going forward. It's not about the change. It's going to get worse. So that's my prediction. How do we deal with it in terms of how do we manage that risk? How do we get comfortable being 
knowing, you know, well, the expression, get comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, if that, if, if it's at our doorstep and that's it, well, we have I to think choose to live. We start you know? by accepting mm-hmm. no different uh, to, to many other things in our life. I always say, treat it like the weather. You have no ability to control the weather. If I'm going to go backcountry skiing tomorrow, I'm going to take precautions. I'm going to check my Avalanche Canada app. I'm going to look at the weather forecast. I know what the snowpack's doing. I'm going to assess the risk, all right? If I'm going to go, I mean, my wife and I've just booked, we're going traveling. We t- I take four months off every year. We go traveling. I've been taking three months off every year since I moved to Canada 30 years ago. This is what we do, right? Mm-hmm. But we're, we got trips planned last year and they all got canceled. The year before, they all got canceled. This year, we've got it all planned again. All accommodations booked. I- <laughs> I've booked, heard this story. <laughs> we've got it all planned again and we're going, right? And we're going this time and we're just going to go. And so, yeah, it's a calculated risk. Mm-hmm. I mean, unlike you, I mean, we differ on our position regarding uh, vaccines. When I was a 10-year-old kid and my dad said, hey, you're coming with me to England, I remember him taking me to the doctor's office the week before, and there were seven syringes mm-hmm. on the doctor's table, those old metal ones with the big rings on them, mm-hmm. cholera, typhoid, hepatitis, um, I don't know. There was a tetanus shot thrown in for good measure. They always Measles, do that one. <laughs> smallpox. Like, I don't know. There was seven of them, right? And, and I had a vaccination passport, one of those old yellow ones from Australia. And when I traveled around the world and I went into all kinds of crazy places, like on the Nile and, you know, in South America and all over Asia, I mean, you got these vaccinations to protect you from shit that was going to kill you. Mm-hmm. So that was a world that I grew up in. And it was just a necessary part of my life growing up. Now, we're not going to get into nanobots and lack of testing and everything else with the current vaccines, because that would open up an interesting conversation. But for me, I take the appropriate precautions as I follow the recommendations of the World Health Organization, as I've done since I was a little kid, getting vaccinations to go traveling abroad. And I assess the risk and I take the appropriate precautions like I do it with everything in my life. I don't dive blindly in, assess the risk, and I plan accordingly. So visualize a picture of me standing on Ben Nevis in Scotland in the third week of August. That's where I'm going to be. It's a mountain I've tried to climb twice before. Visualizing me climbing Mont Blanc in a few years' time. It's, it's, these are visualizations. Mountain climbing and my why helping leaders climb mountains is all around figuring out where you're going, figuring out the steps to get there and overcoming the obstacles, the perceived obstacles in your path, developing a plan B, plan C, if you will, around how to um, overcome those obstacles. But don't be frozen by fear. Mm-hmm. Move forward and have faith in humanity and have faith in yourself you are much more capable to overcome obstacles and challenges that get thrown in your way than you actually realize I you love have it. potential to do. I love it, Chris. I totally agree with you as well. So, well, what are you working on now? And where can people find you and connect with you and intersect with those projects that you've, that you've got going on and things that you're doing? Yeah, well, like you, I'm looking at launching a podcast this year. <laughs> I've got a book, my first book that I'm working on, planning on building an online course around that. 
so I can create some residual income and what's recurring that revenue. That is all about teaching and co- coaching entrepreneurs on how to be a successful entrepreneur while living a life of adventure. Mm-hmm. Something that I've spent my entire life and career doing. Yes, you have. Um, <laughs> my book is going to be called The Art of Sending It. And it's going to be catered towards the Gen X, Gen Ys. My avatar is a young couple down in Southern California. And actually, I now have a client who fits my avatar perfectly. So that's <laughs> cool. Um, and yeah, it's really, it's really all about sharing some stories, not very many, they're for future books. Uh, it's really a bit of a how-to on how to live a life of adventure while being a, or how to, either or, how to be a successful entrepreneur while living a life of adventure, or how to live a life of adventure while being a successful entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. The beauty of COVID is it's been the great accelerator. Mm-hmm. Things that would have taken 10 to 15 years to do have all happened within the last year or two. We can now live and work virtually. We don't have to be chained to a job, nine to five, drive to the office. The virtual world is reality. Sure, it sucks if you're working in a factory, but hey, they're all going to be done by robotics pretty soon anyway. So you'd better figure out how to pursue your passions and what you're artistic and have natural creative talents for because that's shit robots can't do. That's stuff AI is going to struggle with. Like understand what your skills are, your talents are, your gifts are, and pursue those things. Yeah, that's that's the way to go. I totally agree. And so, where can they find you? Yeah, um, chrishardwickinc.com is my website that has my business sort of foundational piece in terms of my peer groups and my coaching, and um, yeah, my future uh, speaking platform that I'm going to be building out. And that's where my blogs live. So that's chrishardwickinc.com. And then I also launched an adventure club uh, last year called adventureclub1000.com. And basically between the two, one is the entrepreneurial side, one is the adventure side, and that's the connection. And so there'll be a lot more blogging happening going forward. Now I've got a few VAs working for me. It's pretty cool. I got VAs all over the world working for me (laughs) and I'm just having fun with it. Right. And I'm not stressing about where the paycheck's coming from tomorrow. I'm just having fun with it. And, you know, I heard the definition of success the other day from somebody was when they got a referral and an introduction. And what I'm finding now is I'm, I'm, I've been at this for about five years, you know, going from entrepreneur to coach and peer group leader. And I'm, I'm actually starting to get some introductions and referrals now. So very humbling, very appreciative. And so that I think is a big tips to scale and helps me reassure myself that the decision that my wife and I made five years ago was the right decision to focus on helping other people and helping entrepreneurs. It is incredibly rewarding work. And what I want to do is protect them from divorces, protect them from working insane hours and not being able to coach their kids in soccer and not being able to pick them up at, you know, after daycare or whatever it is, to really lean into the relationship with their spouse and their kids and their families and, and build on that to create uh, a life that they are going to look back at and say, yeah, that was a life worth, worth living. And you are living proof of it. You have lived your life 
according to those values. I know this firsthand and I know that you are a gift to anybody who, you know, comes in your path, really, whether you're coaching them or not, uh, you just, you light up their life with your energy. And, and so I, I strongly encourage anyone who is fascinated by your stories or wants to learn more to follow up. And I am glad that you mentioned the, uh, the adventure club, because, uh, I, I had my mind, I had it as a thousand peaks club or something like that, but, uh, th- it's a really, it's a really cool site to kind of it's not gamified per se, but it just gives you a chance to, to latch your, a bunch of different, really cool outdoorsy goals in this club. And you're the perfect captain of that, you know, of that ship to follow. So I will put both of those things in the show notes um, for people to follow uh, as well as, as well as some of the references you made throughout. So Chris, thank you so much for giving so much of your time, advice and wisdom and stories and, you know, we'll have to do a 2.0 in, you know, six months or a year after you've done your traveling and after the book is launched, I'd love to hear all about it once it's done. All right. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I'm truly humbled and totally blessed to have had this opportunity to share this time with you and share some of my stories. So thank you, Joel. Thanks, Chris. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Ramble. We know there is a lot of podcasts out there, so we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the, the solution, the, the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you and make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others, you know, all that great stuff. So if the spirit does move you, subscribe, share, post, anything, we'd be forever grateful. And if you have any comments or feedback, good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. We're here to listen. Guests you think we should have on. Of course, send them along. Thank you. And until next time, peace.